Hello, and welcome to the Tulane Biomedical Sciences Podcast, where we discuss topics including graduate career development, student resources, and graduate life within the Biomedical Sciences graduate program at Tulane University in historic New Orleans. My name is Madeline Kist, a second-year PhD student in the Tulane Biomedical Sciences graduate program, and I'll be your host for today's episode of the BMS Podcast. I am here with Dr. Alan Goggins, who is an alumni of our program, and he graduated from 2017 from James McLaughlin's lab in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology. After graduation, Alan served as a postdoctoral fellow at Merck in the Biologics and Vaccines Bioanalytics Group, where he served as president of the Postdoc Association and was the New Jersey State Ambassador for the American Society for Microbiology. Alan is currently an associate principal scientist at Merck Research Laboratories based in South San Francisco, and he works on early drug discovery in the pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, and drug metabolism group. In addition to his role at Merck, Alan serves on the Subcommittee for Minority Education for the American Society of Microbiology. Thank you for being here with us today, Alan. We are focusing our interviews on BMS program alumni. We would like to know your favorite Tulane experience. I'm super excited to be here and feel very honored to be able to come back and and share any insight that I gathered from my time at Tulane. This is going to sound kind of cheesy, and I I apologize for that, but it's it's just the truth. My favorite part was just all the amazing people that uh, got brought into my life through through Tulane and through my time there with BMS. Going through something like a PhD, you really build camaraderie with all your classmates. Everyone is going through the same thing. For almost all of us, it was a struggle. Probably the hardest thing, you know, we've ever done in our lives up until that point. But the nice thing is that you're going through it together as a cohort. We could celebrate and commiserate the highs and lows of a PhD experience. It was definitely a a work hard, play hard kind of lifestyle. But, you know, could you name a better place to have that kind of lifestyle than New Orleans? I mean, it's a pretty incredible setting for for that. And uh, yeah, just the amazing people that, that this program brought into my life. I know that a common feature among everybody in the BMS program, that sense of community, and that is a huge reason why they chose our program. In the introduction, we mentioned that you are currently working in industry, so we would like to know what is an industry postdoc like and what are some of the pros and cons to having that experience? I didn't even really know industry postdocs were a thing. When I started graduate school, it was definitely not on my radar. I really enjoyed and benefited from my industry postdoc experience. You know, I sort of knew at the end of my PhD that I wasn't interested in going the academic route and trying to run my own lab. I was curious about industry, but I didn't really have a lot of information to go off of. I had applied for a few entry-level positions in industry, but I kept getting passed over because I didn't have industry experience. One of my committee members, Lucy Freytag, uh, sent me the job posting for an industry postdoc position at Merck. And the program at Merck had a heavy emphasis on publications and on working on novel and sort of non-proprietary research, which means that you as a scientist can share your work publicly and show what you worked on as a postdoc. And so the way I saw it, I could get some industry experience and see if I liked working in the environment. If I didn't like it, I could always use that publication as my scientific currency to navigate my next career move. But if I did like it, then I finally had that industry experience that all those recruiters were telling me that I was missing. I was able to leverage that opportunity and transition into another role within the company. But it's important to know for the students who are listening and considering this path that not all industry postdoc programs are created equally. You really need to find a program that puts you on projects that you can publish and not just 
put you on work that's on a pipeline or, or proprietary science that you can't share out. And then, you know, they, they call it training. You're going to have a hard time navigating a career move if you can't talk about the work that you did as a postdoc. Mm -hmm. So a good industry postdoc program has alumni who find employment throughout the industry and not just in that one company. And what this demonstrates is that the training that you receive as a postdoc has value outside the walls of that company. You should also never take a postdoc position where you're on a contract or not a full-time employee. Absolutely. I actually was not aware prior to speaking with you that industry postdocs existed either. Um, so those are some really great insights, especially for our current PhD students and PhD students all over the world that are considering a career in the industry area. What part of the PhD experience do you think best prepared you for that? My value in industry was in large part due to my experience in, in flow cytometry. That was the skill that got my foot in the door. But Beyond that, you know, learning how to give a compelling scientific talk is a critical skill set. If you can't explain to others what you know, it doesn't really hold that much value. Something I learned from my graduate mentor, uh, Dr. James McLaughlin, was to always stay focused on the why. I mean, every time we would read a paper or have journal club, we would always conclude with, so what? Why does this matter? It's a critical question. It's really profound, particularly in industry where the goal is to create a drug or fail as fast as possible in creating that drug, right? Right, right? If you aren't focused on the big picture, on what that data set is telling you about the viability of the drug that you're trying to make, then you're likely to waste a lot of money and a lot of time failing to design a drug that never makes an impact. You think back to graduate school and all of those department seminars that you had to give. It actually was a really great training for, for what we have to do in industry. We're constantly sharing out data reports and things like that. And you have to get a variety of scientists from different backgrounds to understand the importance of the experiment that you just ran and the data analysis that came out of it. I can definitely see how that translates over very well whenever somebody like myself who's currently going through the preparing presentations phase of the PhD, you don't really think in the moment that that's going to be something that can help you with your career moving forward, but it makes sense the way that you described it, that that's a very valuable skill to have. A PhD can be a very intensive experience, especially since it's rooted in academia. What did academia not teach you? <laughs> to be honest, a lot. And, and I don't mean that as a jab. There's so much to know. We don't, really don't get exposed to like business concepts in most grad programs that are like BMS. Mm -hmm. um, it's really focused on the science. But in industry, it's always a balance between the science and the business. We may decide to pull the plug on a drug development campaign. You know, if you look back, it's like 50-50, whether it was due to a business rationale or, or a scientific one. We really only learn one side of that coin in grad school. The other thing I would say is, it surprised me how collaborative industry is compared to academia. And again, that's not a knock. It's just uh, I feel like in academia, there's a huge emphasis on individual contribution. What did you contribute to the project? And that dictates where you show up in authorship and, and things like that. But in industry, it's about how well the team performs. You know, can you all work together to bring something to the table that helps make the team successful? You really can't do much on your own in industry. I'll say that much. The scale and, and the pace of science is just too much. It's too fast. So you have to be part of a team. And so, yes, the emphasis is on what you can contribute to the team. But also, how well do you work with others? How well can you communicate across disciplines? How well do you understand how your work impacts the work of others and vice versa? I feel like being in a lab group as part of your PhD can kind of translate over to a career in industry and in that you have had those team building skills and those communication skills. But it sounds like something that you really don't know. That's an interesting comparison. One important difference is, you know, if you're in a lab, 
you're all experts or or working on the exact same kind of science. Right. It was really mind-blowing to me. The first time that I walked in as a postdoc to one of my my very first scientific meetings, I was maybe like three or four days on the job. I walked into this team meeting where we were going to discuss the science of my project. And, and, you know, I was meeting all these collaborators for the first time. And I realized I was the only immunologist in the room. You're part of a team, but it's a very dynamic and and interdisciplinary team. And so uh, it creates different challenges, but also different opportunities. Industry sounds like experts coming together for a common goal. What character traits are helping you thrive in the industry? Communication is critical for collaboration. Something that was shared with me while I was a postdoc from one of our our top scientists at Merck, he told me, kill my darlings, which is a bit of an odd phrase, but it's actually a pretty powerful one. And what he meant was don't get overly attached to your projects. And the reality is, is that most drug development campaigns fail. Mm. So the key to success is to fail fast. The faster you fail, the faster you can pivot and put your resources elsewhere. It's hard because sometimes as scientists, we get attached to an idea. We're conditioned to be persistent because the questions we're trying to answer are really complex. But in drug development, that obsession can be costly. So if you think of a way to kill your program, like if there's an experiment that you could run that would definitely prove that your drug does not work, run it. Like try to kill that program. And if you fail, then maybe you actually have something that will succeed. The other skill that is required alongside this killer mentality is flexibility, because the other side of this coin is that you have to be prepared to pivot quickly when things fail and start focusing your attention on the next challenge. That's a great perspective to have. I think that a lot of people who would like to have industry employment don't necessarily think too much about the skill sets required to thrive there. So that was a great perspective. Regarding your position at Merck, have you ever been on the hiring committee? And if yes, could you please share what they look for uh, during the interview process? I've been on a few hiring committees. In almost every scenario, the hiring manager is looking for something a little different. I, I think there are a few universal truths that I can share. You have to give the impression that you will work well with the team and that you will fit into the workplace culture. That's essential. You have to appear competent and knowledgeable in your field. But beyond that, it's really up to the discretion of the hiring manager. I have seen some hiring managers that appear to make their decisions solely based on the applicant's CV. They're looking for some very specific set of experiences or skills, maybe a certain academic lineage. Oh, yeah. And then you have some managers that appear to have the opposite philosophy, where the candidate is selected, maybe had a completely different background on paper and wasn't a good technical match for the position. But the hiring manager really liked the way they interviewed or addressed questions. Uh, I will say, you know, sometimes teachability is more important than having the exact right skill set. I think good general advice, too, is to never be afraid to say, I don't know. Too many people feel like it's not an appropriate answer in an interview. But what I've learned is oftentimes interviewers will continue down a line of questioning, pushing harder and harder and harder to get you to say, I don't know. And if you don't, it can be a red flag for some hiring managers. The other advice I have for folks interviewing is just remember to stay positive and remember that the entire day is an interview. Even the conversations at lunch or the casual chats over coffee or your interactions with uh, you know, the administrator, they all matter. They're all part of the interview. Uh, I had a colleague once who was you know, what I'll call a shoe-in for uh, an internal transfer position. Uh, however, 
they weren't hired for the role because they started complaining about their current managers and coworkers during a casual conversation at lunch. And the feedback that the hiring manager received was that the applicant might be difficult to work with and seemed to have a hard time getting along with their current managers and coworkers. So just remember that the whole day is an interview. So stay positive. Those are some fantastic points, not only for people considering employment in industry, um, but for a variety of other disciplines. I have heard that post-PhD, a lot of times you are interviewing the person interviewing you as much as they are interviewing you. So it's kind of a back and forth. They are seeing how you are as a fit for the job, and you are also seeing how they are as a fit for your supervisor. Have you experienced that? Absolutely. And I'd say that's a truth that goes beyond just the PhD. I think the fortunate thing about having a PhD is it gives you a lot of leverage and gives you a lot of value in the workplace. So maybe it's it's truer, right, for PhD mm-hmm. holders than it is for others. But I think that that's totally true. You are interviewing the people on the other side of the table just as much as you they are interviewing you. And it's hard to imagine that when you're sitting in that chair, but you need to be critical of them. How are they handling questions? How do you feel, uh, you know, interacting with them? Do you feel comfortable in the workspace space? Do you feel welcome? You know, are you getting vibes that maybe it's, you know, a really demanding, high stress, chaotic kind of workplace? Are you getting vibes that everybody's generally happy? I mean, those are really important decisions to factor in when you're making a decision like where you're going to take your career. I mean, the people that you work with will make or break your experience. You know, And that's not just true in industry. I think that's true in academia as well. You need to surround yourself with people that you enjoy working with and who are going to support you in your success. What is some advice that you may have, um, whether industry specific or general, for people in the very early stages of actually searching for positions before applying for them, especially in the digital age? Well, I I think it's really critical that you said, especially in the digital age. One thing that I'm hearing now is the impact of AI, and it's completely changing things. I mean, a lot of a lot of HR recruiting agencies or, or company, you know, large agencies with recruiting staff, they've been using algorithms and things like that to try to find the best candidates. But it's such an important part of the job application process. You have to be a good fit based on the algorithms and based on AI. So keywords from the job description need to be in your LinkedIn profile. They need to be in your cover letter. They need to be in your CV multiple, multiple, multiple times. I never realized how much of a, let's see, how do I want to phrase this? There's like a behind the curtains for like programs like LinkedIn or websites like LinkedIn. Something that I learned is that, you know, when you apply for a job on LinkedIn, there's actually a scoring mechanism that's going on behind you and it scores you as an applicant. And every job that you apply for that you don't get negatively impacts your score. And it completely goes against this idea of just blanketing your resume and CV to multiple jobs and kind of spamming and applying to lots of jobs because for every rejection letter that you get, that's going to negatively impact your score. And recruiters actually look at that score because if you pay for some of the like backend services on LinkedIn, you know, more the premium services, you can get data like these scores on an individual candidate. And some people will just eliminate you if your score is too low. Networking is a huge, huge, huge part of this. Websites like LinkedIn are a huge part of this. And I would recommend anybody who's considering going into industry in the next two to three years, if you don't have a LinkedIn profile, do yourself a favor, get one now, start to build it out, start to make connections. There are so many different features to LinkedIn and your level of activity and your level of connectedness really does impact where you show up on recruiters' lists of candidates when you're applying for a job. Thank you very much for all of your valuable insight regarding your 
career post BMS and your experiences in industry. I do have one final question for you that we are asking all of our interviewees. What was your favorite New Orleans restaurant? <laughs> well, this one, this one's a, a pretty easy one for me. Um, Stein's Deli. I've I've been obsessed with that place since the first time I stepped foot in the door. I literally have dreams about the Rachel. It's one of the only places that I have to go every time I visit New Orleans without fail. What is the Rachel? It's uh, like a Reuben, but it's on pastrami instead of corned beef. Uh, They make it in-house and it's on marbled rye. It's amazing. Well, that sounds really good. I have never been there. I've never even heard of it, but I think I'm going to have to try it out now since I have a few years left here. Put it on your list, and my guess is that you'll be there more than more than a few times before you leave. All right, that sounds great. <laughs> the Tulane Biomedical Sciences Podcast received generous support from the Louisiana Board of Regents. This episode was produced by Josue Jaramillo, Jenna Coe, Jacob Wilson, and Weiwei Xu. Technical support was provided by Ian McLaughlin. Follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast player of choice. Thanks for listening.